The summer after my senior year in college, I was invited back to my home church to lead the music ministry. I had completed the coursework for my music education degree and was planning to do my student teaching the following semester. Uh, in college, I specialized in vocal music and served for one year as the student director of the college choir. I was more than able to handle a smaller church choir. I was really excited to return to my home church because I was a product of their music program. I had been a member of the choir for six years. I had played in the brass ensemble week after week. I had participated in the weekly radio broadcast. And now I had four years of training to do the job I was going to do. So I headed home with great enthusiasm, ready to start. I wasn't quite ready for the difficulty I would face. When I had been a teen in the choir, I had received more encouragement and support than anyone could imagine, sometimes even more than I wanted. Now I was heading home as an adult and trying to show them some new ways of doing things, different ways of doing things, and I was met with, we never do that song that way. And I can't play the organ part on that song and why would we use a different tune for those words? Isn't the old tune good enough? One day the organist said to me, this music is too hard and I can't play it that fast. And I said, dear Ruth, you play the accompaniment to this other song, which is much harder and you play it much faster. So I am confident that you can do this. Would you just give it a try once and let's see how it goes? I was 21, she was probably 65. I mean, what was I going to say? Almost everybody in the choir was 20 to 30 years older than I was. Why on earth should they listen? I understood what the author of scripture means when he says, no one gets any respect in their hometown. I understand why people think that an expert is anyone who lives more than 50 miles away. Jesus is in that boat this morning. This is a two-part sermon. Most of you heard the first part last Sunday. We're in Luke chapter 4. Let me summarize the scripture from last Sunday, and then after that, I'll have you stand for the reading of the gospel for this morning. So last week, Luke 4... Jesus begins to preach in Galilee. His reputation has preceded him. He begins to teach in the synagogue. When he gets to Nazareth, his hometown, he goes to church with his family. After the ritual reading, someone hands him the scroll of Isaiah. He reads from the scroll of Isaiah, chapter 61, and you remember the words, the spirit of the Lord is on me. He has anointed me to bring good news to the poor proclaim the release of captives, to recover the sight of the blind, let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then Jesus says, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Shocking statement. He essentially said, Messiah is here, Messiah is me. And this is verse 22 now. And I would invite you to stand for the reading of the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
all spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his mouth. They said, is not this Joseph's son? He said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, doctor, cure yourself. And you will say, do here also in your hometown the things that we have heard you did at Capernaum. And he said, truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in the prophet's hometown. But the truth is, there were many widows in Israel in the time of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, and there was a severe famine over all the land. Yet Elijah was sent to none of them, except to a widow at Zarephathah in Sidon. There were also many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elijah, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. When they heard this, all the synagogue were filled with rage. They got up, drove him out of the town, and led him to the brow of a hill on which their town was built, so they might hurl him off the cliff. But he passed through the midst of them and went on his way. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. There are several things about this story I don't understand, but I think I do understand the central problem here. Jesus seems to be willing to heal and liberate people who are in great need, particularly in Capernaum. These manifestations of his glory are designed to point people to the message that he is bringing, the message that the kingdom of God is near. But Jesus seems reluctant to use his power to polish his image or to win an argument about his identity. In fact, he's more likely to tell demons and evil spirits to keep their mouths shut about him. I think this harkens back to the, the third temptation in the desert. You remember Satan says to him, throw yourself off the roof of the temple and trust God to protect you. In other words, demonstrate your power, prove your messianic identity to us. And Jesus says no to that. He's not doing that. These hometown folks think that they have the right to require Jesus to perform miracles on demand in order to prove his words and his identity. Of course, that would make Jesus a vending machine, dispensing miraculous deeds in response to the whims of the crowd. Jesus is no vending machine, and he's not at the disposal of the fickle crowd. He is Lord, and it isn't the other way around. Only he is Lord. And so Jesus refuses to perform like a dancing monkey for them. In fact, he observes that prophets are really never believed in their hometowns anyway. And we know that's true from our own experience. And then I think he makes what some people might consider a mistake. I mean, if his goal is to make this crowd happy, this might have been a bad move. He tells two stories. The first is about a widow from a foreign nation, and then one about Naaman from Syria, a non-Jew. And, and these stories serve to remind his hometown neighbors something they ought to know 
but have obviously forgotten or, or don't want to remember. And it's this simple truth, that God loves all people everywhere. That God loves all people everywhere. The covenant that God made with Abraham stressed that God would bless all nations of the world through Abraham. God has come to bless, to enrich, to bring peace. They ought to know that. They ought to know that when Messiah came, he would be the hand of God to bless all nations. They ought to know that from the story of Jonah, right? God demonstrates his love for the enemies up in Nineveh. And this event here in Luke may be a little like the Jonah story. I mean, at the end of the story of Jonah, after God relents and Nineveh is reclaimed, Jonah, who's frustrated with God through most of the story anyway, says, I didn't want to go to Nineveh in the first place because I knew if I went up there and preached, you'd forgive those lousy people and I don't want any part of that kind of forgiveness. You can hear the bitterness in Jonah, can't you? Do you understand how poorly he reflects his heritage and what God wants to do through Israel? You remember from the previous reading of the gospel in Luke that Jesus' reputation had preceded him when he got to his hometown in Nazareth. The crowd had heard what was reported that he did in Capernaum. And Capernaum had a very large non-Jewish population. So why would Jesus do spectacular, miraculous work among foreigners and not do the same at home to prove his credentials? And Jesus simply says in response to this, there were lots of needy widows in Israel and Elijah was sent to a non-Jewish widow. Why? Because God loves his other people too. And there are lots of lepers in Elisha's day, but God sent Elisha to Naaman, the Syrian, the non-Jew. Why? Because God loves his other people too. It's the same answer. These Jews in Jesus' hometown felt they had privilege. They expected special access. They expected their needs to be met first. They wanted to be able to demand that Jesus would respond to them there, then, now, on their timetable. And when the, he would not dance at the end of their string, well, isn't it quickly... How, isn't it interesting how quickly they jump from speaking fondly of him to he deserves to die? I mean, it's a flash of a second. This is our hometown child. He deserves to die. I mean, can your head swivel that fast? How, how is this? A few minutes ago, they're observing how well he reasoned and taught and spoke. And, and now when he says what they do not want to hear, when he doesn't live up to their expectations, when he doesn't match who they think he ought to be, when he doesn't perform on demand, they find within their own system a way to condemn him. Hear this. If your system or your worldview or religion 
allows you to deal death to someone like this, you had better question your system, worldview, or religion. It in no way reflects the faith of Jesus our Christ. So the people rush him to the top of a hill, the hill it says on which their city was built to stone him. Stoning, by definition, is either throwing stones at someone till they die or hurling someone off a cliff so they meet the stones, which is the same thing by definition here. They're going to stone him. They're going to kill him by pushing him off the top of a cliff. And what's frightening to me, and you can't assume that the scripture would have taken time to delineate this if it weren't true, but it makes me think they seem to be able to move this direction off quickly. And I wonder, is this a path they've taken before? I mean, do they know how to do this from experience? Have there been others who they've rushed to judgment on and said, we can't have that kind of thinking around here. Off the hill they go. It's a frightening thought, isn't it? That, That they can move that quickly and think that they are within their religious system doing things that are according to God's good pleasure all the while? Is there a well-worn path to the top of their hill for convenient stoning? It's interesting to me that this crowd who demands a miracle rushes to judgment when they don't get it gets the miracle they seek and don't know it, right? Jesus is being rushed up the crowd to be stoned and somehow he's able to just walk right through them and leave. Now, how's that possible? You ever been in a big crowd, angry, moving in a direction? It's chaotic, but if you're the center of attention, it's frightening. And how does that happen? Jesus walks right through them, walks right away and, and they don't know it. The biggest miracle in my mind is how is Jesus able to be so different from them? I mean, he's the product of their environment. He's the product of Judaism. We know he's the divine son. And so we know why. But you think about the discontinuity between the system in which these people lived. I mean, this was his hometown, right? Don't we all say the apple doesn't fall far from the tree? But Jesus and these folks couldn't be more different than they are. How is, able, how is Jesus able to be so different? These folks, when their system is ruffled, they resort to anger violence and murder. Good law-loving Jews that they are. And Jesus, king of the universe, on a mission of love to his own creation, is rejected by those he loves, rejected by those who created, rejected by those who raised him, rejected by those he comes to save at great personal cost. How is it that with the kind of upbringing he must have had from those people, he just didn't call down fire on the whole lot of them and burn them to cinders. We would probably understand if he did that. I mean, these people were miserable. And my fear is, is the reason that we would understand that 
is that we're probably more like the Jews there than we are like Jesus. We would rather exercise our privilege than believe that God loves everyone. We want everyone to believe exactly the way we do rather than embrace the wideness of God's mercy. We who are so quick to judge can hardly believe that there could be anything wrong with the way we are thinking. If I were completely candid, I would have to admit, I find it very easy to move from frustration to anger when I'm challenged, especially in an area where I think I'm an expert. I find it easy to get caught up in my own expectations my expectations of others and my expectations of God. God, why aren't you answering me a little more quickly? Don't you understand my timetable? Don't you understand what I need and when I need it? I don't think I would ever be moved to physical violence like this crowd, but I suspect I probably could be moved to verbal insult or reputation trashing in an attempt to prove that I knew what was best and that others were wrong. What, what's Luke saying to us here about all of that? Well, first off, he's saying Jesus endured rejection. He endured it graciously. You may have to do the same thing. Can you endure rejection? even on Facebook, and keep your mouth shut? Luke's saying Jesus did not retaliate against those who attempted violence against him. Can you remember that Jesus loves all of us, even our enemies? Can you refuse to retaliate? Elsewhere, Jesus calls this turning the other cheek. Jesus went home to his hometown and was not received there. And this is what John says about that in his gospel. He came to what was his own and his own people did not accept him. But to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave power to become the children of God. Are you able to face discomfort peacefully? Are you able to listen for the voice of God even if it comes from an unexpected source or in a way you did not anticipate? Is your character increasingly like the character of this Messiah? Many times here we sing a song in closing and it says something like this. Let it be said of us we were marked by forgiveness what does it mean to be marked by something on Ash Wednesday our Catholic brothers and sisters carry the mark of Christ to witness to the world that they belong to Christ we Protestants don't like that so much I don't exactly know why marking is an interesting concept we know what the Ash Wednesday mark looks like, right? We know, we've seen the thumbprint in the ashes. 
But what might a person who is marked by forgiveness look like? What might a person look like who was known to be forgiving in extremely difficult circumstances? Think about the Amish parents or political prisoners or victims of brutality. How does, how does forgiveness mark a person? I believe unusual forgiveness marks a person. And what does it mean to be known by our love? When you ask another person to describe you, what do they say? I mean, sure, there, there are the usual external markings, short, tall, lean, not so lean, dark hair, light hair, no hair, but what are we like? Gentle, kind, thoughtful, marked by compassion? What would that look like? Who would we have to be for folks to see us and say, oh, that person has unusual compassion? Is the character of Messiah clearly marked on you? The center of this passage is Jesus' announcement. His announcement that the year of the Lord's favor has come and that in him, that day, the prophecy is fulfilled. That, that the kingdom is present, that the invitation is open, that Jesus wants to reconcile all of humanity with himself. And I wonder, what do the ambassadors of Christ look like who understand it's their role to continually be announcing to the whole world that the year of the Lord's favor has come? It has dawned, it is present. God desires to be at peace with all of us and to reconcile himself to all of us. I would think those ambassadors would have to be marked by forgiveness and by compassion and grace and by love and humility. Is, is that who we are? We're gonna sing that song in closing right now. I'm gonna invite the musicians to come and help me. But I would challenge you in two ways this morning. If you've not heard before the message that the year of the Lord's favor has arrived, that the entry to the kingdom is open, I would invite you to, in your heart, say to Christ, gracious God, by your mercy, allow me to enter your kingdom and follow you. Because he desires that we follow him. He desires that. And if you are already walking with Christ, if you are already in this kingdom moving forward, I would invite you to ask the Holy Spirit, hey, am I marked by forgiveness? Am I marked by compassion? Am I known by my love? Is, are these things that were true of Christ true of me? And to what degree? And Holy Spirit, where do I need to pay greater attention? Where do I need greater humility? Where do I need better listening in order that by your spirit I might continually be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ? Those are the questions we have 
as we pray this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this story from your word which reminds us of the character of Christ, of the genuine and open love of Christ, and demonstrates to us who we can be by the transforming grace of your Holy Spirit. Help us to that end, we pray. For we ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. And now may you all be marked by the compassion of Christ. To the glory of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.